Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. This morning, we're beginning a brand new sermon series called Friends, and our theme for today is My Best Friend, Jesus. I want to invite you to open up to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. You can do so on your Bibles or devices or follow along on the screen behind me. Our sermon this morning is going to be based on Luke, chapter 7. We're going to begin reading at verse 33. In verse 33, it's Jesus speaking responding to the accusations of some of his enemies. This is what Jesus says. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the, to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock 
and our Redeemer. Amen. I remember sitting around my family's kitchen table with all my family and my brother and a few of his very best friends as they told some story of an adventure they had while they were canoeing. I don't really remember what the story was all about. I recall it had something to do with taking a wrong turn, getting lost, falling in the water, and then needing to call mom to come and help get them out of trouble. But what I do remember is listening to my brother and his friends tell this story, a story about friends told in the company of friends. And I remember this. I remember they really got me thinking about the kinds of friendships that I want to have. I was 16, and now I'm maybe double that, but I've been thinking about friendship ever since. Ever since then, and and now I think that the life story that I want to have for the rest of my 30s, into my 40s, 50s, and 60s is one that's filled with stories of friendships, great friendships, because friendships are a blessing from God. Friends are great. Friends are great. They're people we can laugh with. They're people that we can cry with. Friends are people in our lives who we can have serious and deep conversations with, or we can share memes with and just talk about the weather. C.S. Lewis said that good friends are not necessary for life, but good friends are necessary to give life meaning and depth. And C.S. Lewis wasn't the first person to recognize the value of friendship. King Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes 3,000 years ago, and who is the wisest person that this world has ever known, said that two are better than one. It's simple and yet so profoundly true. Sometimes it's good to enjoy an evening by yourself, curled up with a book, to have some quiet time, some downtime, just enjoying your coffee in your backyard or on your porch alone. Sometimes it's good to sit and just watch the game or binge watch and you have the remote and no one else. But life's better with others. Times are even greater when you have friends there with you. That's the way God wired us to be. He wired us to be people who crave and benefit from personal relationships. And sometimes friendships are really simple. I think about a four-year-old running around on a playground, meeting new friends and and coming back and telling their dad that, dad, I, I have a new friend. It's easy. I think about when I was in seventh grade, how I'd just pick up the phone, call my neighbor and say, hey, do you wanna play? And we would go and play basketball or ride bikes and poof, just like that, you have a friendship. Friendships can be simple, but oftentimes friendships can be difficult. Sometimes in high school, friendships can be especially brutal. As you grow older and you start to have a job where you work 40, 50, maybe 60 hours a week, friendships can be especially tough. You grow older and you have kids who require 150% of your time. Friendships get especially difficult. So friendships aren't a simple thing. A survey that was taken earlier this year, even before the coronavirus outbreak took place, 
found that 60%, 61% of Americans are lonely and feel friendless. You might think, well, that's older generations filling out this survey. But the opposite is true. It actually found that, that younger people are reporting to feel more lonely and more friendless. Baby boomers were reporting that they were 50% likely, 50% of the respondents said that they feel lonely. Millennials, 70%. 18 to 22-year-olds, Gen Z, 80%. And there was a strong correlation that the, that the higher amount of hours spent on social media engaging with friends in that way, it caused people to feel more alone. In fact, one in five millennials reported that they had no friends. It's not just an age problem. It affects all of us. You might say it, it even affects men in particular. Men are reported to have three times more likely the chance of not having a friend. Three out of five men in America responding to a survey said they had fewer than two friends. One in eight men said they had no friends. Gentlemen, that's 95 million men in America who have two or fewer friends. But it's not just age, it's not just men, it's all of us. Well, the average American reports to have 338 Facebook friends. The average American says they have at most two people in their lives whom they trust, whom they would go to if they needed help or needed to talk about something. And it's a quarter, one in four, who say they have no friends at all. They have no one to whom they would turn to if they needed help. You could call it a loneliness epidemic, and, and some people have, but let's call it what it is. It's a friendless epidemic, and, and we'd be wrong to think that what's going on in the world doesn't affect people who come here to church just, just because we gather here together. So as we start this sermon series called Friends, what I want to do is, is talk about that, is talk about friendship and, and what makes a friend. I want to do three things this morning. First, I want to talk about a definition of friendship because I think the definition that, that we work with for maybe most of our lives is, is a bit shallow. Secondly, I want to talk about our best friend. I want to talk about our best friend, Jesus, and, and spend some time this morning hanging out with him and, and seeing why it is that the Bible calls him our friend, why Jesus is pleased to call us his friends. And thirdly, after hanging out with our best friend Jesus this morning, I want to show you how Jesus, as our friend, not only changes the eternal trajectory of our lives, but his friendship also has an impact on our lives here on earth and the friendships that we have. So let's get after it. The first point that I want to talk about is a definition of friendship, because oftentimes I think we're working with one that, well, it doesn't really get at the friendships that our hearts desire. By way of illustration, just last week, I was having a conversation with a person who told me a story, and they started out their story in this way. They said, Matt, I got to tell you about a conversation that I had with a coworker, or, or maybe they were my friend, but they're my assistant. So, well, maybe they're an acquaintance. And I think that says a lot about our friendships. 
Oftentimes, we don't understand what a friend is, and so we don't understand who our friends are. I mean, think about this. If, if you and I wanted to become friends or, or social media or Facebook friends, what would it take? It would take me or you to initiate things with a click, and then you or I would have to go click, and then boop, we're friends. And yet you and I both know that the friendships that we desire in our lives, the friendships that our hearts crave, the friendships that God made us for, require a lot more than two clicks and the shallow amounts of information we show online. I want to introduce a a definition of friendship that we'll be working with today and for the next three weeks. It's coming just from a book, the, the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, but this is how the dictionary defines a friend. A friend is a preferred companion. A a friend is someone that you like to be around. In fact, you prefer and you choose to be around them. If you have a free evening, this is the person that you want to hang out with. If you're going to grab coffee or lunch, this is the person that you're calling up or texting to go meet you there. A friend is a preferred companion, someone whose company you enjoy. It's, it's the person you want to go on vacation with, the person that you want to go on con- canoe adventures with. That's a preferred companion, and that's a friend. But as it turns out, many, many years before Webster's Dictionary came out, another book came out that did more than just define friendship, but the person who defined friendship also purified and justified his friends. The friend you know I'm talking about is Jesus, who calls us our friends, but he really gets at why he's our friend when you see that he was accused of being friends with all the wrong people, of preferring the companionship and the company of people who, well, he shouldn't have. We read it in Luke chapter 7 before, but Jesus, responding to accusations of his enemy, said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a friend of sinners. Jesus' enemies watched his ministry. They watched it very closely. They saw that Jesus hung out with people who gathered together and ate lots of food, who had parties, who drank alcohol, and they thought they got him. They thought they had a mic drop moment when they said, aha, here is a friend. Here is a friend of sinners. But what did Jesus do? He picked up the mic and he said, uh, yeah, friend of sinners? That's me. Yes, actually, I, I want to be known as a friend of sinners. And what Jesus did after, after saying that is he went on to prove it. He went on and proved that Jesus is, in fact, the friend of sinners. And what our best friend did, well, what God's word does this morning is is it unpacks three things that show us what Jesus means when he calls us our friends. Here's the first. Jesus, as our friend, is someone who is real. Let me explain what I mean by that. Right after admitting that he is the friend of sinners, Jesus went to one of the Pharisees' house, someone who invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. 
a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and and poured perfume on them. And then God's word says this. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Here it is. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who knows everything, is seated there. And what does he demonstrate? That he prefers the company. He prefers the companionship of who? People who are well known to be sinners. A woman who is known throughout her town as living a sinful life. That's Jesus. That's our best friend. He shows himself to be a best friend by dining with people who others would not eat with, who others would not even look at. And you know what that got him? You know what his realness, his genuineness, and and I mean this in the full sense of the phrase, his down-to-earth nature got him? For all his realness, it got him death. Because you want to know who else Jesus was eating with there? Well, it wasn't just this sinful woman. It was Pharisees. It was Pharisees who had invited Jesus into their home. It was these people who would eventually be the instigators of his death, the ones who would bring about his crucifixion. Jesus preferred their company, their companionship as well. During this stage of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, they were content to just mumble and grumble about the things that Jesus did. But some of you know how the story ends. Eventually, it wouldn't be enough. They would want more than just to complain against this Jesus. They would want him dead. But they knew they couldn't. They knew they couldn't get at Jesus or the people that, would fo- that were following him would riot. And so you know what they did? They went to one of his real friends. They went to someone who had been one of Jesus' closest companions, someone that Jesus had called a real friend himself, and they bribed him. They said to Judas, would you betray him for a payment? And someone that Jesus had called a real friend, someone that Jesus had been real to, said, yeah, I will. I know where my friend prays. And so it was on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he died, that Jesus was there praying. And get this, he was praying with his friends. He was playing with some of his closest friends. And Jesus was being real to them. Jesus was being real and genuine. And though he was the son of God, he was also the son of man. And he let them know. As he prayed, he said, pray with me because my soul is overwhelmed. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. This is what Jesus felt the night before he was crucified and experienced all the pain and the shame that went with it. And Jesus was real about that. But you want to know what else Jesus was real about? You want to know what else Jesus prayed about? It was you. Jesus says as he prayed there, Father, 
I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus wasn't just real about the overwhelmingness he was experiencing. The night before he died, the night he was betrayed, Jesus was real, not just about the overwhelmingness, but about the blessedness that he wanted you to experience. As Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking out as only God could do at everything that waited before him, he looked at all of the pain, all of the suffering on the cross, and he said, I'm not going to step back from it, but I'm going to step into it. I'm going to be real with you. I'm overwhelmed to the point of sorrow about that which lay before me. But he said, I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to show you my heart. I want you to be with me. I want you to be where I am. I want you to be with my heavenly father and know his glory. And so I'm going to go through with it. All for you. That's your best friend. That's our Jesus. A friend who is real. But a friend Jesus isn't just real. He wasn't just real during the time that he was really here on this earth. Our friend Jesus still also supports us to this day. When people at the dinner party were being judgy about the woman who had lived a sinful life and they watched her as she was wiping tears from Jesus' feet with her hair, Jesus didn't ignore it. Jesus didn't ignore what the woman was doing or pretend that he didn't hear what people were saying about her. Jesus stood up for her. Jesus supported her. And that's what our friend Jesus does. He supports us. He even lifts us up. Look, he said this. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them from her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. At this dinner party, Jesus did for this woman what he did throughout his ministry for all the people he encountered and what he does for all of his disciples. He stood up for them. He supported them, even if it meant going up on a cross. In John, John 15, which we read earlier, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Sinful woman, Jesus' apostles, you and me are not just Jesus' followers. We are not just Jesus' disciples, but our God. He calls us his friends. Do you understand just how amazing this is? Not only has Jesus laid down his life for you, not only was Jesus real in sharing our humanity with us, but Jesus supports us even to this day. He does it first and foremost by picking up his cross, by laying down his life, but he supports us even still with very precious promises. 
Here are two. In Psalm 50, he says, call upon me in the day of trouble. Whatever's troubling you, whether it's your marriage, whether it's the upcoming wedding, whatever it is that's troubling you in your life, if it's family friction, call upon me because I'm there to care for you. As if that weren't enough, he says in 1 Peter, cast all your anxiety on me because I care for you. All of it, all of your anxiety, your anxiety about coronavirus, your anxiety about your bad back, your anxiety about the next stage in your life, the anxiety that you fear about anything in your future, politics, the election, anxiety you feel about your anxiety. Jesus says, cast it all on me because I care for you. That is what our God does. That is what your friend Jesus does. He supports you. He cares for you. He's real with us. And here's the third thing. Jesus, our friend, speaks life. When everybody else there gathered around the sinful woman was speaking death sentences upon her and was speaking words of judgment against her, Jesus spoke life. Let me explain what I mean by that. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, Jesus, the Pharisee said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven liberal loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know what I find really fascinating about this story? There's a woman crying and getting so many tears out from her eyes that they fall onto Jesus' feet. And you want to know what St. Luke does? He doesn't tell us why. <laughs> it's actually an odd scene when you think about it, tears falling from someone onto their feet as they recline at a dinner table. And yet the Holy Spirit, who inspired the gospel writer Luke to write this, never draws our attention to why the woman who had lived a sinful life stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping. Not once. You know why? It's because as the woman was wiping her tears from Jesus' feet, Jesus was wiping her eternal tears with a proclamation of peace. This woman clearly had a life that was in pieces. She was there standing before him crying. And yet, what does Jesus do? Stop the dinner party and say, stop, look, good. You should be crying. You should feel ashamed. You should feel guilty because you have lived a sinful life. No. Jesus says, go in peace. 
your sins are forgiven. Jesus dries her tears eternally because Jesus takes her sin, takes her guilt, takes her shame and washes it away. He covers it in his blood. He says, go in peace. You are right with God. There is nothing between you. There is nothing between me. You have peace before God. Live at peace. That's what Jesus does. That's what our best friend Jesus does. He speaks life. He doesn't speak death into people who do and should only know the death that comes by sin, but he speaks life. A while ago, a pastor who's a part of our church body, he did some research. He read through the entire New Testament with two highlighters. He took one highlighter and he highlighted everything that God says in his word to Christians or about Christian that is positive. Everything that is affirming, everything that is encouraging. And then he took another highlighter as he read through scripture and he highlighted everything in God's word that God says that that we might consider negative. Phrases like you of little faith, phrases where he, he calls out sin. Phrases where he says, shame on you for not knowing better and and living in a way that's weak and distrusting. He went through with boat highlighters and he tallied up 690 different things. 690 things that God says to Christians or about Christians. And you want to know what he found? You want to know how many of the things he found that were positive and how many things he found that we might consider negative. We might consider with all of the things going on in the world, all of the struggles that we know we have as sinful people, that God's word is probably 90 negative things to the 10 positive things that he said about us. But that's not the case. You might think, all right, maybe it's closer to 80. He says 80 things about us negatively or to put us in our place to to 20 things that are positive and, and uplifting. Still not. It's not 70 30. It's not even 50 50. It's not even 60 40, where he says 60 positive things to the 40 maybe negative things. It's not even 80 20. It's 90 10. For every nine times that God calls you a saint, there's one time that God calls you a sinner. For every nine times where God calls you who you are, who he has made you to be, righteous, and his very own daughter, his very own son, there's one time. There's one time where he corrects you and he reminds you that we do live in a life that is affected by sin. And the reason why is because your God, your best friend, Jesus, speaks life. He speaks so much life into you that 16 of the books in the New Testament don't even say one negative thing about you and me and who we are in Christ Jesus because we are covered by him. We are covered by his blood and his righteousness. And he tells us so. He tells us that by speaking peace to us through his word every day of our lives. You want proof of that? Just look at the story of a sinful woman. It's a curious phrase in this story as Jesus wraps up teaching Simon the Pharisee who invited him into his home. Jesus says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. It's a fascinating phrase, but It makes sense. The reasons why 
we fail to love, fail to forgive, and fail to be friends to others is not because we have received a little love and a little forgiveness. We've received much. We have a best friend, a best friend who is real to us, who supports us, and who speaks life to us. Any failures that we have to love and forgive and befriend others, it only comes because we haven't hung out with our best friend long enough. It only comes because we've forgotten just how much, just the enormity of the love and the forgiveness that we've received. Our best friend, Jesus, he not only makes us friends, but he empowers our friendships as well. 2,000 years ago, before people really got interested in writing and researching about friendships, Jesus showed us what the perfect, what the best friend looks like. And just a little while ago, there was another researcher, a researcher at Marquette. Her name is Dr. Oswald, Dr. Deborah Oswald, who has studied thousands and thousands of people who have become friends. She's boiled her findings down to just a few things that that good friends do, that, that people do in order to become really good friends. Can I tell you just a few of her findings? The first one is this, that people who are good friends are real with each other. Think about it. When you go home from church today, maybe you'll stop at a store, and if they're really on top of their game, the cash register person running that will probably ask you, hey, how are you doing today? And you'll say, good, I'm doing fine, because of course you will. You don't really divulge too much information to those who are strangers. But friends are different. Friends are people that you can be real with. Friends are people that you can share your greatest joys and your deepest struggles with. Friends are people that you can be real with. And and being real with people, well, it's what makes friends, friends. Dr. Oswald found this out, but it's nothing different than the Bible has been telling us all along. Galatians chapter five says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What is confession other than being real with one another, being real about things you struggle with, being real about what's going on in life and doing it, why? So that you might be healed, so that you might experiencing the blessings of forgiveness and absolution that God gives us through our friends. So here's a question I have for you, and especially men. Who are you real with? Who is it in your life that you're real enough with that you can confess things with, that you can share with the people in your life what's going on, struggles that you're having, questions that remain unanswered? If you have those people in your life, count them as a blessing and confess to them, be real to them, and what you're going to hear from them is the forgiveness and absolution of your God. But here's my challenge for you. If you don't have someone like that in your life, drop the facade and be real with someone. Be real with a Christian friend in your life who's going to point you to your best friend. After all, isn't that what the church is supposed to be? A place where you can be real with one another. Oftentimes, it's mistaken for a country club of people who have their lives all put together. But you know 
Jesus said of himself, the church is supposed to be a hospital for those who are sick with sin. It's supposed to be a place where people can come and say, I'm struggling with taking too many pills. It's supposed to be a place where people can come and say, I'm struggling with sexual identity. It's supposed to be a place where people can come and say, I have questions. I have questions about whether or not God loves me or he's even real. It's supposed to be a place where you can confess and you can find healing for your hurts. You can find wholeness for your emptiness and you can find answers to life's biggest questions. A place of friends that point one another to our best friend. Dr. Oswald also found this out, that friends support one another. This seems obvious, doesn't it? But I was reminded about this just yesterday when a friend of mine shared with me that his wife broke her foot, her ankle, in two places. My response was pastoral and as friendly as I could be. I said, of course, thank you so much for telling me this. How's she doing? I'm going to pray for her. Can I admit something to you? I forgot to pray. I forgot to pray till later that night. I was preparing for this sermon and I was thinking, man, isn't that how much it goes so often? The support that we show our friends. Maybe we click an emoji with a teardrop or we say, I'll be praying for you. But how often doesn't it actually require us to move our feet and support and stand up under someone and hold them up and care for them? That's why I love how Galatians chapter six puts it. The writer to Galatians says, carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians is one of the reasons why you can't actually have 338 friends. You can't really carry that many people's burdens, but you can carry a few. You can carry a few. And in this way, what you will do is fulfill the law of Christ. What you will do is be little Christ. You will be best friends towards one another when you carry one another's burdens. Here's the last one. Dr. Oswald's research found that people who are good friends speak life to one another. Do friends sometimes complain? Do friends sometimes have to vent and, and get things off their chest? Most certainly. Every once in a while, friends need to complain about a bad back or a bad boss. Every once in a while, friends might need to point out that choices we make or things that we're doing in our life aren't right. But friends speak life. For every one conversation that we have that is, well, hard and difficult and, and maybe seems negative, there's nine conversations. There's nine conversations filled with laughter, filled with love, and filled with encouragement. Ways in which friends pick one another up because that's what friends do. Friends speak life to one another. And it's my prayer for you that you are that friend and that you find those friends. And yet there's no guarantee. I can issue no promises that if you speak life, if you're super supportive, and if you're really real with the people in your life, that you're gonna have a best friend or even that you're gonna have one or two friends that you can go to. I can't promise that, I can't guarantee that, but the guarantee and the promise is this, 
that you have a best friend. You have a best friend whose name is Jesus. You have a best friend who calls you his savior. You have a best friend who calls out to you that he loves you and wants you to be with him. He prefers your companionship. He prefers your company both now and in eternity. And he proved that to you by laying down one's life for his friends. We praise God for that friend, our best friend, Jesus. Amen.